Well, good morning. Hey, we're finishing up the series on valleys this morning, and before we get to the content of the talk, I just want to play, do a little mental exercise uh, together as a group. Imagine this. Imagine if I were to give every person in this room a blank piece of paper and a pen, and uh, I was going to administer a, a test of sorts, right? Don't freak out. I'm not going to do this, right? But imagine that I was going to give a test. Depending on the content of that test, depending on the question I would ask, we'd all score pretty differently, right? I mean, I could, you know, put up an a algebraic uh, equation on the screen and say, all right, solve this equation. There would be uh, some math brains in this room that would just do it like that. There'd be others of us uh, who would uh, think we had the right answer and not. Um, then there would be those of us like me who would just be sitting there staring in disbelief thinking, why did I not pay attention in class, right? Um, you know, if I were to put up a, a riddle, you know, uh, on the screen, those of us who are good at mind games, you know, maybe we'd, we'd do good at that and get a good answer. Others of us wouldn't do so well. Um, and we have a, a great medical community here at New Spring. So maybe, you know, I could ask you to describe some complex medical procedure and some folks in the room will get it right. Uh, the rest of us would just be glad we didn't know the details of that medical procedure, right? Um, but there is one test that I could administer that we would each do equally the same on. I mean, there's, this sort of unites us as a group. One thing that we would all score the same, and that'd be if I were to ask you, go ahead and write down for me all the challenges that you'll face tomorrow. All right, this is one we would all fail. Because none of us really knows exactly what tomorrow's gonna look like. We don't know what the challenges are that we'll face. And I think we all recognize that tomorrow includes kind of like a best case scenario and a worst case scenario, right? Best case scenario is you go to work tomorrow and they say, hey, you've been a great file clerk for two years. Starting tomorrow, you're the vice president of the company. We're giving you an additional six weeks vacation. Your salary is going to be multiplied on the order of 10. Um, it's been nice. And we'd just like to give you the day off today. Why don't you just go and celebrate, right? That'd be the best case scenario, right? We don't tend to worry too much about those sorts of things, right? It'd be, it'd be nice if it happened, but we don't tend to stress too much over the best case scenario happening. We tend to stress over the worst case scenario. What tends to worry us is what might happen if we went into work tomorrow and we had to deal with the opposite of that. We have to deal with losing our job or you know, the worst case scenario of losing someone that we love or going through a very difficult time. Those tend to be the things that we worry about. You know, and most of us will spend the majority of the days of our life somewhere in the middle, right? It's not the best case scenario and it's not the worst case scenario, but we're just sort of somewhere in the middle. But how many of us know that even when you're living in the middle, the fact that the worst case scenario is just sort of out there somewhere can be kind of a distressing thing. And each of us in our life has to decide, how are we going to live our life understanding that the worst case scenario is potentially out there? And I think there's two major approaches people use to deal with this. I mean, one approach is just kind of like the, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of stupidity kind of thing, right? I'm just going to, you know, eventually the worst case scenario is going to catch up with me, so I'm going to do as much uh, crazy stuff in life as I possibly can. I'm going to get as many uh, weird, crazy activities stuffed into my life before, you know, the worst case scenario finally catches up with me, right? I cannot identify with these base jumping um, uh, people, right, because I don't understand their lifestyle. I tend to be more the other side of the equation. The other way that I think we, we tend to, to deal with the worst case scenarios, we tend to become a controller. We start to control for the bad outcomes that, that could happen. Um, you know, these are the people who, you know, they wear a life jacket in the bathtub type people. <laughs> you never know, right? Most accidents happen at home. So um, these, these are the kind of people that are really guarding for every possible bad outcome. Now, if you want to meet a person like this, all you have to do is book a flight with me because somehow I always end up in the same row with one of these bozos, right, when I'm flying. 
I like to fly on the emergency aisle anytime I can. If, if you haven't noticed, I'm a rather tall person, so I need that extra leg room. And uh, so somehow, whenever I fly by myself, I always end up on the emergency row with one of these controller, scared of the worst case scenario kind of people, right? When the flight attendant comes out and does their little spiel, right, and they show you how to use the seatbelt in case you forgot since you got out of your car and went into the airport, they, you know, they're showing you how to affix, properly affix your oxygen mask in case the plane is careening into something hard at 500 miles an hour. You're going to want to make sure you have that thing on real well, right? And they're showing you all this stuff. And, and, you know, while, while you're sitting there thinking, I've heard this, I've heard this, I've heard this, move on, get the plane off the ground, someday I'd like to get where we're going, the other person, the controller person, they're sitting there with their little emergency guide open, staring into the eyes of the flight attendant, nodding as they're paying attention to every little detail, right? You know it's going to be a bad day at this point, right? This is the kind of person who gets up from their seat and goes to the flight attendant and tells them that the six foot two, 150 pound, 19 year old sitting in their emergency aisle was not listening to the emergency guide and was actually talking to the person next to them. Thank you very much. Um, and then when that doesn't work, it's the same person who then gets back up out of their seat and goes and tells the flight attendant that the six foot two, 150 pound, 19 year old sitting on the row with them doesn't look stout enough to help people out of the plane in case it crashed, right? I'm not bitter, <laughs> but I tried to tell the lady, well, look, we're flying over the Gulf of Mexico. If the plane crashes, it's not going to be a matter of who can lift people off. It's going to be a matter of who can tread water the longest, you know. But <sighs> anyway, I think most of us in life, though, we tend, to, we tend to do a little of both, don't we? Because there are things in life, I mean, when, when we get realistic and we really think things through, we understand there are things in life we can control for, there are things in life we can't control for. So I think most of us, when we think about the possibility of the worst case scenario, we do a little of both. We control what we know we can control, and we try to ignore what we know we can't. We try to just live our life not paying a lot of attention to the things that we know we can't control for, and whatever it is that we can put control over, we do. You know, and, and this is because we understand there are exceptions to everything, right? You go get life insurance. If you got a good life insurance agent, at some point they're going to tell you all the things that your life insurance policy does not cover in case you decide to become a, a you know, hang glider pilot or um, you know, start living a, on the edge lifestyle. Your life insurance isn't going to cover that. If you're buying an electronic device and they're trying to sell you one of those wonderful warranties, if the salesperson's honest, they're going to tell you at some point there are some things this warranty does not cover, right? Every single contingency plan any person has ever come, with, come up with cannot plan for every possible bad outcome. But here's the thing. I don't know if you've noticed this in life, but when you get to that moment where you're like, okay, I'm just going to control everything I can, and everything I can't control I'm going to ignore, have you ever noticed that's not a very functional life? Because life every day will, will, will show us once again, with, through our friends, through our acquaintances, through our family, we will be once again reminded that that worst case scenario is out there. Here's the thing, as God followers, each of us at some point, if we're going to live a, a functional life, if we're going to live the life God has called us to live, we're going to have to learn how to be effective with the worst case scenario in plain sight. We're going to have to learn how do, I, how do I function understanding that that's out there. And so what I want to do is I want to talk to you about a valley that's in the Bible. This is a valley you're probably very familiar with. Most of us are familiar with the 23rd Psalm. And in the 23rd Psalm, verse 4, there's a verse that says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, right? This is the way most of us have heard it growing up. And that's a beautiful rendering of the verse. It's probably not the best, best rendering of the verse. Really, if, we were, if we're true to the original language, it, it would be better rendered, even when I walk through the darkest valley. 
even when I go through the darkest valley of my life. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What do you do when you have to go through the darkest valley of your life? Some of us are there today. Others of us, we're not there, but we will sometime be there. Or we've just come out of that valley. So we're going to talk about what are the secrets to survival in that valley. That's going to be our talk this morning. But in order to do that, I want to take you back to an Old Testament character in the Bible who went through his own personal worst valley. 42 chapter book in the Bible that does nothing but talk about this person and the valley that he went through. I need to give you a little bit of setup so you understand. Um, There was a, a man in the Bible named Job. Job was incredibly rich. The Bible tells us he was the richest person of his time. But interestingly enough, the Bible also tells us that he was not, he wasn't just the richest man, he was the most God-fearing person. Job 1.1, we see there once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless. Now this is God talking about Job. He was blameless and a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil, right? So this is a person, Job was a person who loved God and he was very rich. And what's interesting is, I think, when we think about valleys, one of the hard things, that, one of the hard things for us to deal with is to understand that even those of us who really love God and we follow God and we want, we want to do what God has called us to do, even those of us, even, even people who love God will go through a darkest valley experience. Job gives us a little bit of backstory to this. See, Satan came to talk to God, right, about, and what Satan, what Satan wants to talk to God about is he wants to accuse God followers. The Bible calls Satan Diabolos, the one who hurls accusations. Satan's job is to come to God and tell him all the things that God followers have done wrong at this point. Satan comes up, and he wants to talk about um, people that he feels like are messing up. And God doesn't want to talk about those people. God wants to talk about Job. In Job 1.8, the Lord asked Satan, hey, have you noticed my servant Job? Your translation may have my friend Job. He is the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him. Man, wouldn't you like for God to put a wall of protection around you? You've always put a wall of protection around him in his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does, and look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. For each of us who've already had a darkest day, darkest valley experience in our life, we remember the day it started. A lot of times these sort of experiences, they sort of blindside you. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. But it's when you get the phone call that somebody that you love very much has been in a car accident and won't make it. Or it's when you get that diagnosis at the doctor's office that you never thought you would get. It's when you walk into the office of the job that you thought you would work at until you retire and there's a pink slip and you realize you're done. This was Job's day. This was his day to start in the darkest valley. Job 1, starting in verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Now time out. What did Job just lose like that? The Bible tells us Job owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and he also had many servants. This is like Bill Gates getting a messenger who comes to his house and says, Mr. Gates, I'm sorry to inform you, you're penniless. 
all your financial resources completely gone. By the way, I'm going to need you to pay me for the telegram, right? Um, this is what, what Job is going through. He's lost everything. And then while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home, and suddenly a powerful wind, some translations are going to call that a tornado, swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed, and all your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Job lost everything he had. The kids that were the prized possession of his life are dead. The Bible tells us that in this moment, Job falls on his knees and he worships God. Man, wouldn't you love to be that kind of God follower? Even when he loses all those things. This is the verse that many of us have heard all our life. And Job, Job said, I came into this world naked. That's the way I'm going out. I'm going to bless God's name regardless. But you know what? Many of us, when Satan starts to put us in the darkest valley, if he notices that we don't break in the first little run of the darkest valley, he just puts it into a new gear, right? And that's what he did to Job. Job God goes back to Satan and God says, hey, did you notice you asked me to harm Job for no reason so that he would turn around and, and say that he hated me. But guess what? You did it, and he's still worshiping me. I guess you were wrong. And if Satan had any integrity at all, he would have said, you know what? You're right. I did do wrong. But that's not the way he plays. Satan said, oh, you know what? Skin for skin. Okay, so maybe taking away his stuff didn't do it. But I tell you what, you let me touch his health. You let me make him a very sick man, and I'll guarantee you he'll turn on you then. And God tells Satan, okay. You can touch his body, but you can't kill him. So Satan left the Lord's presence, this is in verse 7, and he struck Job with terrible boils. These were sores from head to foot. And Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat, on the, as sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. This was Job's darkest valley. He couldn't live in his house anymore. He had to live on an ash pile. He wasn't living in comfort anymore. He was, having to, he was having to deal with these sores from the head to toe of his, of his body. His wife was uninterested in spending time with him. Later on in the, in the book, it talks about how that people on the street would spit at him and, 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 and make fun of him. And this was a person who used to be a well-off, respected member of the community. And Job says this in verse 25, What I have always feared has happened to me. What I have dreaded has come true. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. Only trouble comes. This is that darkest valley. In Psalm 23, it says, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. What are we talking about when the Bible says the darkest valley? Unfortunately, it's very difficult for us to bring over biblical poetry into our language and have it really carry forward all of the emotion and intent of what the, what the poet is saying. When David talks about when I walk through the darkest valley, he's saying, even when I go into a valley where there is no light and I cannot see my hand in front of my face and I cannot, and I reach out and there's no life, there's no one to reach my hand, there's no one to listen to me, no one to talk back to me. I feel like I'm completely alone and abandoned. There's nothing here for me and it's dark and I'm alone. Even when I go through that, I won't be afraid because I know God is with me. How do you do that? How do you survive in the darkest valley? I want to give you some secrets to survival in the darkest valley and we'll be done. Here's the first one. First secret to survival in the darkest valley is don't waste your energy wishing your way out. Don't waste your energy wishing your way out. And this is for me as much as it's for anybody else because this is what I do, right? I get in the darkest valley and I go, God, 
I don't want to be here. I hate this. I hate having to deal with this. This is not what I anticipated my day was going to be like. This is not what I anticipated my week was going to be like. God, why didn't you stop me before I did this? I was, I was trying to honor you. I went down this path. Why didn't you divert me? Why didn't you take me a different direction? Why do I have to be here right now? God, if you're God, you can take me back out of this. Back me out of this situation. And Job did the same thing. In Job 3, Job says, why wasn't I born dead? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why was I laid on my mother's lap? Why did she nurse me at her breasts? Had I died at birth, I would now be at peace and I would be asleep and at rest. In Job 6, it says, oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant my desire. I wish he would crush me. I wish he would reach out his hand and kill me. Job 10, this is Job speaking to God. So why did you have me born? I wish no one had ever laid eyes on me. I wish I'd never lived, a stillborn, buried without ever having breathed. We go to God and we say, God, I wish I didn't have to deal with this person. I wish you'd never put this person in my life. God, I wish there was no such thing as cancer. I wish there was no such thing as a heart attack or a stroke. God, I wish I'd never gotten married. But before you wish your way back to the entrance door of the valley that you're going through, you're going to want to make sure you're ready to forfeit what God has at the exit. It's interesting. I was at a, 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 at a local hospital recently in the emergency room corridor, and they were wheeling a, a mom in labor, I guess, towards the ladies' uh, wing of the hospital. And her husband was walking alongside the wheelchair, and I, I'll never forget, she grabbed his arm and wrenched him over by where she was. I thought she was going to pull his, his shoulder out of the socket, right? And she looked into his face, and he, she said, I don't want to do this anymore! Right? And I saw in this precious lady's eyes the same pain I had once seen in my wife's eyes going through the same process. And I thought to myself, I don't blame her. I wouldn't want to do it anymore either. But you know, there's some valleys in life that once we're there, we just have to go through. Some valleys in life, you can't go back to the entrance. Once you're in the valley, you have to go through. And every moment that you spend wasting time asking, I wish, God, I wish I could be out of here. And we spend all this energy and all these resources trying to wish our way back. And, and, and all of that time is wasted. Because sometimes it's just a valley that we have to go through. And just as that mother will eventually cradle that precious baby in her arms, God does have a destination for us at the end of the valley. Number two, so number one was don't, don't waste your time wishing your, wishing your way out. Number two is be careful who you listen to. When you're in the darkest valley, you want to be very, very cautious who you, who you listen to. You know, Job, the book of Job, 42 chapters, the book of Job is about Job going through this experience and three of his friends coming to talk to Job about what he's going through. Somebody needs to write a book about this. Right? The title needs to be Job's Worst Day on Earth and Three of the Worst Grief Counselors Ever. Right? These guys were not helpful. And you'll go through that. You'll go through times in life where you'll deal with people who are not helpful. And, and I think we can, you know, we can relate. I mean, thousands of years of recorded history later, and it's still difficult to get people who don't know what they're talking about to shut up. I mean, these guys show up on his doorstep, and they want to spend time talking to him about their view of the situation, and let me just throw this out there. I would propose to you that bad advice is worse than silence. Some people are more concerned with the process than they are with the person. 
Facebook will teach you more about human nature than you ever want to know. If you ever notice, somebody will put a thread as a thread. Somebody put a thread on Facebook that says, "Pray for me and my family, please." My my father passed unexpectedly last night. What's the next post going to be about? So what happened? Or or maybe you know maybe they'll be nice and they'll say, "Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that." So what happened? Right? How did he die? Let's get the details. Let's find out what happened. Let's, let's, I need to know some more process information. I'm interested, right? These are the same jokers that you get stuck behind on the highway as you're driving your car down the highway. You're a half mile behind what you think is an accident. And you get close to the accident and you realize the accident is on the other side of the highway. And you're behind a bunch of people who are, hey, look at that. Oh, look, they're opening the doors of the ambulance. And the policeman's writing a little report. I wonder what he's saying. Hey, sweetheart. Yeah, I'm on K96. There's an accident out here. You're right, I should text them. <laughs> Job was upset because his friends were more interested in the process than they were in the person. Job said to them, after he kept listening to them talk to him, he said, you pretend to tell me what's wrong with my life, but you treat my words of anguish as so much hot air. Job is saying, you don't care how I feel. You're not interested in understanding what it's like to be me right now. You know, I'm trying to tell you where I hurt. I'm trying to tell you what my pain is. I'm trying to tell you what it's like to go through what I'm going through. And all you're interested in is telling me your opinion of what I'm going through and what I should do about it. There's two things that bad counselors do. And as a, as a person who counsels married couples on a regular basis, I want to stay far, far away from these two things. These are two things that are huge mistakes for any counselor to make. Even for those of us that are in this room, as we're, as we're talking to our friends when they're going through difficult times, we've got to make sure we don't do these two things, right? So here's, here's the first one. The first one is these guys tried to shoehorn an infinitely complex God into their own simple logic. We serve a God that is more complex than any of us ever have any idea. And these guys had put God in a box. They had observed God work, and they had come up with their own theory of God. And they came to Job to present to Job their theory of God, to explain to Job this is how God works. Job 4, this is one of Job's friends. Job, uh, his friend says, think, has a truly innocent person ever ended up on the scrap heap? He's saying, has anybody ever ended up where you're at without doing something wrong? Do genuinely upright people ever lose out in the end? It's my observation that those, oh, by the way, these guys will always tell you what their observation is. It's my observation that those people who plow evil and sow trouble reap evil and trouble. Another friend says this, does God mess up? Does God Almighty ever get things backward? It's plain, you ever read something in the Bible that makes you just want to go punch somebody? This verse makes me want to go punch somebody. He says, it's plain that your children sinned against him, otherwise why would God have punished them? Can you imagine talking to a father who's just lost his children and telling that man that the reason his children died is because they dishonored God without any knowledge of the situation? Another friend, how I wish, that, how I wish God would give you a piece of his mind, tell you what's what. You can be sure of this. You haven't gotten half of what you deserve. There's some people that will come to you when you're going through the darkest valley. And they may be valuable people and they may have a place in your life, but there may come a time where you have to say, I just need you to be here with me right now and I don't need your advice. Some people whose advice will only take you in a bad direction, not a good direction. Let me tell you what kind of people you wanna watch out for. You want to look out for people who have it all figured out. If you ever run into somebody who has God completely figured out, run and run fast. 
I was watching television the other night. I think I was up, seems like I was up with my youngest daughter. And you shouldn't turn on the TV late at night because um, the shows that pass for, for um, you know, the infomercials and all that stuff that come on late at night, um, it's, it's like you wake up in the morning and you say, did I really watch that? Did I, did I really watch a commercial completely about, uh, you know, um, sham wows or whatever it is? I can't believe I spent two hours watching that, right? But when I was up, there was this television preacher who came on, right? And he said, here's the thing. God just told me, just a minute ago, God just told me that for the next 20 people who call into this show with a donation, I'm going to send them this prayer cloth of many colors. And, and with this prayer cloth of many colors, you can touch heaven's door and you'll see amazing things happen. And I thought, this is where we've come to. We've taken a God who created the universe in which we live and we've stuck him in a foot-by-foot -foot piece of polyester fabric and we think we understand God. We don't understand God. We don't get to put God in a box. We don't get to come up with our theory of God and, and tell people that this is how God works. The only theory of God that works is this one right here. I don't get to put God in a box. Here's the second mistake they made. This is the second mistake that bad counselors make. They tried to shoehorn Job's personal journey into the mold of their own personal experience. People that do this typically do this because they mean well. But they get to the point where they think that because I've gone through something that I consider to be similar, that I can just talk to you about what you're going through even though we're not going through the same thing. And I can tell you what worked for me and I can assume it will work for you. You tell somebody in your life, you say, I'm going through something really bad. And they say, what's wrong? Oh, I've been diagnosed with something, a medical problem, and it's fairly major. I don't know what the prognosis will be. And your friend says, you know what? A week ago, I had a hangnail. <laughs> and I prayed for God to take away the hangnail. And the next morning, I woke up, and it was gone. So, you know, go try that. Let me know how it works. That's a facetious example, of course, but we got to be very careful. When we listen to our friends or when we're talking to our friends about what we're going through, we've got to be careful about treating our experiences as though they're identical. They're not identical. Our journey is not the same journey someone else is on, and theirs is not ours. We're different. God, God has put us in different positions. We're on different paths and different journeys, and we cannot treat our situations as though they're the same. Sometimes we have to suspend advice. Okay, number three. And that is that you need to make sure that you stay on God's side of the courtroom. Stay on God's side of the courtroom. There's an interesting dialogue that happens in the book of Job because Job starts out in the beginning of the book of Job. Job is close. Job and God are together and Job is serving God and God is referring to Job as his friend and they're, 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 they're together on this and, and it's, it's this great relationship. But as Job begins to walk through the valley, it is as though Job begins to take baby steps away from God and it's as though he says, God, I'm not really sure anymore that you're for me because I'm having to go through this. And then it's like, God, what are you doing to me? Why am I going through this? And then after that, it's like, God, I I really need an answer. And a step later, he's like, I'm going to haul God into court, and he's going to have to give me an answer. Look at, these, look at the progression of this. Starting in Job 9, Job says, So who am I that I should try to answer God or even reason with him? Even if I were right, I'd have no defense. I could only plead for mercy. And even if I summoned him, Job is saying, even if I subpoenaed God, and he responded, I'm not sure he would listen to me. And then he takes one more step over in, nine, in chapter 9. He says, God is not a mortal like me, so I cannot argue with him or take him to trial. If only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together, and the mediator could make God stop beating me, and I would no longer live in terror of his punishment. And then he goes all the way over to the prosecuting attorney's desk, and he shakes his finger at God, and he says, as for me, I would speak directly to the Almighty. I want to argue my case with God himself. 
Can I tell you one of the biggest challenges you will face in the darkest valley is the challenge of you being you and God being God. It will be the challenge of understanding that God understands the valley that you're going through, and and to, to a large extent, you don't. Here's the thing. There is that pivotal moment for every God follower where at some point in time, we're going to have to decide, am I going to let this valley teach me how to look at God, or am I going to let God teach me how I'm going to look at this valley? David said, it's dark. I can't see. It's dark and there's no life and I call out and nobody answers me and I reach out and nobody takes my hand. But I'm not going to let the darkness teach me about God. I'm going to let God teach me about the darkness. God comes and he answers Job. Job does pretty much subpoena God into the courtroom. And so when God shows up, God shows up in a hurricane more or less. Anytime somebody shows up in a massive storm, it's a good idea to listen. So the Bible tells us in Job 38, uh, starting in verse 1, Finally, God answered Job from the eye of a violent storm, and he said, Why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself together, Job. Up on your feet. Stand tall, because I have some questions for you. I want some straight answers. Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much, who decided on its size? Certainly you'll know that. And who came up with the blueprints and the measurements? How was its foundation poured? And who set the cornerstone while the morning stars sang in chorus and all the angels shouted praise? God is saying to Job, Job, I love you, but you're not God. Your friends are not God. Only God is God. Why is this important? See, here's the thing. Satan thought he understood Job's limitations. Satan thought he understood Job's breaking point, right? He, he got, and God even gave him two tries, right? The first time, Satan says, hey, Job's breaking point's gonna be when you take away all his stuff. But Job didn't break. And then, Job, and then Satan says, okay, well, maybe if we make him real sick, he'll break. But he doesn't break then. Satan didn't understand Job's limits. And Job thought Job understood Job's limits. Job cried out to God over and over in the book of Job. Job says to God, I can't make it one day more. I can't go any farther than this. I'm absolutely at my breaking point. But can I tell you, the God who formed the fabric of who you are, he stitched you together and made you the person that you are. He is the only one who understands how much of a valley you can make it through. And he will never send you into a valley that you cannot make it through. When he sent Job into that valley, he knew Job was strong enough to make it through. So you want to stay on God's side of the courtroom. Here's the fourth thing, and this may be the biggest thing. Number four is you're going to want to look for signs of God's presence. Look for signs of God's presence. When we go back to Psalm 23, it says, Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. What's the, this deal with the rod and the staff? When, 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 I guess, let me put it this way. I drive what I think is a fairly distinctive car, right? And there aren't a whole lot of them around here. I drive a little green Volkswagen station wagon, right? It's, I know it's a soccer mom car, and I know that. But there aren't very many that look just like mine. So my girls know, you know, my two little girls, they know my car. I have a little two-year-old. And my two-year-old gets, if my wife and I are meeting at a restaurant somewhere, and I'm there before they get there, my two-year-old knows that when they pull into that parking lot and she sees my car, she doesn't have to see me to know I'm at the restaurant. She sees my car. She knows that means I'm at the restaurant. That is a sign of my presence. When my car is there, it means I'm there. 
And what David is telling us is that there are moments when I will not be able to see God, but there will be signs of his presence. See the rod and the staff thing. We can get all tied up in symbolism there. I heard preachers come to my Bible college when I was there, and they want to talk about this huge, immense, complex, complicated symbolism of the rod and staff. Can I tell you, I don't think it was near that complicated. David was a shepherd. He understood that there were moments when he had to step away for a second from his flock, but his rod and his staff leaning up against the rock that he was sitting on a minute ago told his sheep that he was not gone. He was there. He had stepped away for a moment. And I'm telling you, there are going to be times in your life where you won't see God particularly in the circumstance, but God will leave signs for you of his presence. And this is one of the things that we see when, when, when God talks to Job, because see, here's the deal. Job had gotten to the point where he was spending a lot of time on the ash pile, and he got so focused on the ash pile that he couldn't see the stars when they shone at night. He forgot that the God that he served is the God that put this universe together, the, guy that, the God that, that hangs the stars at night, the God that was sustaining him every day with breath and the ability to live. See, some of us, it won't be an ash pile. For some of us, it'll be a hospital. And we'll be in that hospital, and we'll get so used to the hospital. And, and, and you know what I'm saying. When the smells of the hospital and just the general environment become so familiar to you that you can't help but start focusing on it, you can get so focused on the hospital that you can forget the God that puts you together. And God is saying, you need to remember there are signs of my presence. And they are there to remind you that you can make it through the darkest valley. That word comfort there. The Bible says, your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. And in our culture, we think of comforting as, you know, you hug somebody, you pat them on the back, you say, I'm so sorry you're going through this. But that's not really what that word comfort means. I used to read this verse, and I used to think David is such a better man than me. Because the verse says, even when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid. And I thought, wow, I just, I cannot say that about myself. I cannot say that when I go through the darkest valley of my life, I won't be afraid. Because I know Jonathan Hoover, and I know when I go through that valley, I know I'll be afraid. That's just me. But what's interesting, that word comfort really puts it into perspective. Because if we go back to the original language and we look at what that word means, that word actually means when, the, when David says it comforts me, the word comfort means to change my mind about being afraid. See, in the moments when we go into the darkest valley, it's not that we won't be afraid. We will. It, it'll be tough. If you lose somebody that's very important to you, if they pass away, it won't be easy. And it'll be scary going into that valley. If you lose your job, it'll be scary going into that valley. If you have a relationship fall apart that you always counted on, it'll be scary going into that valley. But God is saying, no, in that moment, I'm going to leave signs of my presence. And those signs are there to change your mind about being afraid. Why does God's presence change our mind about being afraid? I recall when, um, when I was growing up, we, uh, my dad didn't like to fly at all. Um, you can ask him about that sometime. Um, but he didn't like to fly. And so my dad, when I was, you know, especially when I was around 9, 10, 11 in that age range, my dad would, was asked to speak all over the country. And so we had this little Volvo 240 um, bathtub of a car that we drove all over the country in. And, and one of the things I noticed about that car is it had to have the worst designed windshield known to man ever. Somehow, every time we'd go on one of these cross-country trips, we'd get caught in some terrible storm. And, and it didn't matter how high you turned those windshield wipers on, when a storm hit, you could not see past the windshield, right? You just could not see at all in front of the car. And those storms would come up, and I, I would tend to be afraid because, you know, it's, it's a little bit scary when you're careening down the road and you can't see in front of you. But I would always remember that 
my dad was a very safe driver. I'd ridden with, in the car with him for thousands of miles across the country, and we'd never been in an accident. My dad had always been an incredibly cautious person. And the thing is, I trusted him. And so in those moments, I remembered that I was in the back seat and my dad was in the front seat. I would close my eyes, lean back in the seat, and know that at some point we would get through this. There's going to be a time when you're going to go through the darkest valley in your life. And it's going to be impossible for you to see. But those are the moments where we have to remember, I'm in the back seat, God's in the front seat, and I trust him. And I'm, I'm going to choose not to be afraid because he's here, and I know we're going to get through this. Just perhaps one of the most important things to remember about going through the darkest valley in our life is that darkest valley experiences are through experiences. They're not two experiences. Maybe the dangerous, most dangerous thing we can do when we go through a darkest valley moment is to take a snapshot of where we're at and to think that it defines our future. Because God doesn't just drop us off at the darkest valley. He goes through with us. God is gonna leave, and I don't know where this message reaches you this morning, but if you're going through the darkest valley, let me encourage you, look for those signs of God's presence. They are there to change your mind about being afraid, and you will get through this. God will take you through. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you are a loving God who takes us through even the darkest of valleys. You are a great God, and we thank you. While heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed, it's possible that you might be in this room this morning and you say, Jonathan, this God that you're talking about that gets you through the darkest valley, I don't have a relationship with him. Well, the really great news for you is that God has already done everything that's necessary for you to have a relationship with him. He sent his son to pay for the things you've done wrong. Now all that remains is for you to trust him and to say, I accept your gift. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna say the words to a very simple prayer in a moment. My words aren't important. The important thing is if you mean this in your heart, you can say this silently in your head, and if you do, it'll be settled this morning. Here's that prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know I've done wrong things. I know I can't get to heaven on my own. This morning, I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus. With heads bowed and eyes still closed, I want to pray. Father, one, one more group of people in this room I want to pray for. Father, if there's anyone in this room right now, and today is their darkest valley, they're in the middle of an experience that, Father, is very difficult for them, I pray for your peace and for your comfort. Even as we call out and we say, can anybody hear me? And Father, we just ask for the faith to understand that there's nothing that could possibly separate us from you. Father, for anyone going through the deepest valley, I just pray for your comfort, for your peace, and for the understanding that you are with them. In Jesus' name, amen.